Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I am Jonathan Lack. And I am Sean Chapman. And we are here to talk about video games again. Yes, again. We've been doing this. It's been like a week since we did this, right? Man, yeah. It's crazy. That's the illusion we're keeping up here, yep. at least. So last week on the podcast, we started our countdown, our epic, epically anticipated countdown yes. of our top ten favorite video games of all time to complement our lists of favorite movies, favorite TV shows. Uh, it's a three-part episode. If you didn't hear last week, that's where we started the countdown. We did numbers 10, 9, and 8 on our lists, plus a bunch of honorable mentions. We're going to continue this week. We're going to talk about 7, 6, 5, and 4. Next week, we'll finish it all off with 3, 2, and 1. Uh, I'm out of town for this whole period, so that's why we're, we're just recording a bunch in advance, so you can hear all these episodes. we got a lot to talk about here. So, Sean, let's give them the old recap and then get back to... All right. Yeah. The old recap. The ye old recap. And then we can get into talking about uh, some more games. So my number ten choice of my favorite video games of all time was Minecraft. Yep. Your number ten? My number ten was Journey. My number nine was Red Dead Redemption. And my number nine was Starcraft. My number eight was Portal 2. And my number eight was Half-Life 1. And now my number seven choice is... City, developed by Rocksteady for the 360 and PS3, is my favorite... And Wii U. Don't forget about Batman Arkham City Armored Edition. Yeah, fuck that. Alright. Batman Arkham City is my favorite Batman thing ever. I like it more than any of the movies, any of the Tim Burton movies. As a Batman experience, I value it above The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises and Batman Begins. Uh, Even the animated series. If you take the animated series in totality, yeah, that's the definitive version of Batman. But just if we're talking about a single Batman story and experience... It's Mask of the Phantasm. Mask of the Phantasm is great, and I love it. But Arkham City, for reasons I'll explain here, is my just, just my favorite Batman thing ever. And I think the biggest revelation of playing Arkham City for me is that... I think maybe the ultimate way to experience Batman is through video games. And I think it's because Rocksteady just cracked in Arkham Asylum... So yeah. fully how you do a Batman game. It's These are the best licensed games ever. Because they really do. You feel like you are Batman playing these. The controls are so perfect. The gameplay environments, the villains, the use of the license, the voice acting and everything. You are just so, again, we use that word immersive. But you really do feel like you are Batman. You are put in his shoes. You have full control. They really, because it's Paul Dini doing the writing. Kevin Conroy doing the voice of Batman. They really get this character 100%. All the best aspects of Batman are in there. He is a detective in these games. Mm -hmm. But he also is a very, very adept fighter. You know, you never really feel like you are at a disadvantage in these games because Batman... He's stronger than his enemies. That's just a thing about Batman. He doesn't really have, outside of maybe people like Bane, uh, characters who really threaten him physically. And that's Mm -hmm. something... To be able to do that in a game and still have the game be challenging is amazing. And I think that level of immersion in Batman means that Arkham City, which is, I think, like Arkham Asylum is a great foundation, but Arkham City, City, they really blew it up and just made something that is, to me, a masterpiece uh, for Batman and Batman games, and just gaming in general. And... I think when you have all that and you have this great story they're telling, it, it mixed in with the gameplay and you really being Batman and getting to live this firsthand, 
I think that's the ultimate version of Batman to me. That is, this is just, as Batman goes, this is the most I have ever been invested in the character is playing Arkham City. And that's something I think I said, we, we went back, this would have been back on a different podcast we did from WGTC yeah. Radio, but like the monthly tenor, the monthly stuff. At the end of 2011, when this game came out, we both did our favorite video games of that year list, and this was my number one. And I think I said that at the time, that I was thinking this might have been the most immersed I've ever been in Batman, particularly just because those last couple hours are so yeah, utterly spectacular. It's really good in. And, and I think the more I think about it over the years, and I, I, I've played this game so much, just not in, in the campaign, but also just going through the challenge maps and just going around Arkham City. It's, it's not... I don't know if I would call it an open-world game. It has it, I would, it's, it's an open-world game. Okay. I mean, I mean, Arkham Asylum technically is, too, as far as okay. I'm concerned. Then uh, I said Red Dead Redemption is my favorite open world game. I guess Arkham City is. Yeah. I just wasn't thinking of it that liar. way. Liar. Yeah, I'm a liar. But yeah, I guess you know this has all the foundations of my other favorite version of Batman, which is the animated series and Mask of the Phantasm, the film of the animated yeah. series. Uh, it's got all those foundations because it's got Paul Dini writing and Kevin Conroy doing the voice of Batman, and even just as importantly, Mark Hamill doing the Joker. Yeah. And you know, really, Arkham Asylum and Arkham City are at their core kind of about that relationship. Of Batman and the Joker, uh, and it has all the other villains in there, but that is definitely the through line emotionally yeah. between the two games. And I think Arkham City, you know, Arkham Asylum definitely threw a lot of villains at you. Arkham City does it too. And I think what's so amazing about these two games, and Arkham City in particular, is that while there's a couple of little things here and there where it's like that villain didn't necessarily need to be there for the story, mm-hmm. Arkham City is just such this beautiful kind of symphonic tapestry of villains and story points, and they tie together so flawlessly in those last couple hours where. Arkham City, if I'm telling you, if, if I'm not finished with it yet, it's just a great Batman game I love. But you finish it, and you have all the stuff with... Um, who's the main bad guy in the game who's running the tower? Uh, Hugo Strange. Yeah, Hugo Strange. Sorry, I just forgot his name. Hugo Strange, and Ra's al Ghul, and Talia, and Catwoman's in there, and the Joker, and all these things, and Clayface, and yeah. those are all tied together so seamlessly, and so much shit goes down at the end yeah. of that game. Just as a story... It is phenomenal because you are on the edge of your seat from start to finish playing Arkham City and it is such a great mystery figuring all this out. But then at the same time, I think emotionally it does such great stuff with Batman and the Joker, but particularly Batman, just kind of living this life where he is pushing himself in Arkham City so far past the point of endurance, you know? And he goes through so much pain in this game, both physically and emotionally, and getting to the point where the ultimate emotional punch is his greatest enemy dying. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I've spoiled the game for you. It's you've probably seen it. It's Spoiler: like the two, three years old. Yeah, the possible. Joker. The game ends with the Joker dying, and I feel yeah. like I have to say that to discuss it because that is such a brilliant choice, and it is a choice that really ties these two games together so well and leaves you on this note where, when you finish Arkham City, that's one of those games for me where you just have to sit through the credits, kind of catching your breath, because you can't believe what you just saw. Yeah, like because Rock City just takes so full advantage of the fact that. This Batman story they're telling does not have to be tied into existing continuity. So, like, th- that's one of the main problems with like comic books and stuff like that. Is it's like you know, you know, the Joker's never going to die, and you know, Talia's never going to die, or you know, like Robin or like any of these characters are never going to die, or even if they do die, they're going to come back because it's fucking comic books, and they always, always do. And so, since this is doesn't need to be that, it's like they're like, okay, like, what if we can just do this? What if we can kill the Joker? Like, let's do that in a story, and let's make the story about that. And it's, that's. So interesting, because you just don't get to see that anywhere else. Yeah, and you know, 
Mortality is one of the main themes in Arkham City, and I think it's a fascinating theme to study in the context of Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's they do such interesting work with it throughout. And I think there's so many sort of technically video gamey things to the story, like the number of characters you encounter, and yeah. like you know you have this large section with the penguin and whatnot. But it doesn't. The way Rocksteady makes these two games, they don't feel video gamey in that way in the story. They really do feel organic, like. You need the penguin in this section. Yeah. That is a thematic point we're having. This character needs to be the villain for this part, and we need to have fucking Nolan North doing it. Yeah. Great penguin. Yeah. And, and you know, by the end, we do need to have Talia and Raish and Hugo Strange and Clayface and Catwoman and the Joker all tied into this together because they are part of a larger story we're telling. Yeah. And that larger story has such major implications for how they view the Dark Knight in these games and what their interpretation of Batman is. And I think it's so cool. This is the main difference between these games and the majority of licensed games is that they take Batman and they're not doing it to cash in on Batman. They're making a Batman game because they have an interpretation of Batman that while it has roots in the animated series, we have not seen this kind of Batman before. It is a new way to look at the character yeah. in many ways. And I think that is so incredible. And while I completely agree with you, for me, Mas- you know, Mask of the Phantasm is the best filmed media version of Batman ever. Yeah. Mask of the Phantasm is A+. But for me, in terms of just what Batman stories I love the most, this is number one and Mask of the Phantasm is number two because I feel like as a game... I, I like they. It's so cool that you can use the video game medium to take a character who is a comic book and movie and TV character and take him further to me than ever before. And I I love Arkham City. And this is before even talking about the gameplay, which yeah. is so much fun. And and Arkham Asylum is is close to perfect in that battle system. But boy, they refined it in Arkham City to the point where it you just there's like a one to one connection between you and Batman. Yeah, and those, it is easily the best third person action combat that's ever been made. Like it's it is completely unbelievable. Absolutely, how, how fluid and easy to control and satisfying the combat is in these games. Yeah, and I just love do, doing the challenge maps and just mm-hmm. playing the pure fights. But it's even more fun, you know, in the game itself when you know there's a lot of situations kind of like The Last of Us is actually a game that reminded me of Arkham City because there's a lot of these environments where you go in and obviously in Arkham City you're gonna kill everyone or get them down. Yeah. But and in Last of Us sometimes you're your Batman past. probably kills people because you're so <laughs> fucked up. He probably yeah. just snaps everyone's necks. But in any case, Batman, you know you've got these large environments, there's a bunch of enemies and you want to do it as stealthily as possible so it's so much fun that way to just figure out, you know, I've got this room I'm Batman, I've got all these gadgets and I'm really strong what do I do? And you can tackle it however you want it's again again, a game that encourages a lot of creativity on that level, I think Arkham Asylum and Arkham City definitely are some of the sort of the the best examples of that aggressive style of stealth game and then that's just even more heightened when you do the challenge rooms where it's like you have to eliminate all these people, but if you want to get, like, the three-star version or the three-battering version or whatever they do, you have to, like, you know, you have to, t- t- like, knock out two dudes, like, at the same time on a line launcher or something. And those, like, like it basically becomes a puzzle game there, and I find that aspect of it really fascinating. They're just, like, straight up, we're going to turn this into a fucking puzzle game, but it's a stealth game at the same time. Oh, it's, yeah, it's phenomenal. And I, you know, the, the music we just played for you, the main theme of Arkham City, that's my favorite Batman theme. I love uh, that. I, mean, theme. I wouldn't say that for me, but okay. sure, I could. I, it's a really good Batman theme. Sure. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I could understand arguments for other themes. Obviously, it's just for me. Like when I hear that, that kind of sums up how I think about Batman, and particularly, it feels so perfect to Arkham City because it's that theme is so harrowing and dark and kind of hopeless and relentless in its hopelessness, but it keeps kind of it has this kind of theme, musical theme of endurance to it. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of what Arkham City is. Is 
that, and that's kind of the version of Batman it presents. I don't think there's a moment in Arkham City where they sit you down and explain the theme of the game or the theme of Batman, and that's kind of the Christopher Nolan style, is you yeah. have a speech explaining Batman. Mm-hmm. Arkham City is more experiential. He's a symbol for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the whole, like, you have Michael Caine sit down and look into the camera and it's like, here's yeah. what Batman is. Right. That's, the, that's Christopher Nolan style, and it's great. But I feel like in Arkham City, it's really, it's about how you experience Batman and what feeling you walk away with, and the feeling you get is, you know, he's this guy who... Again, pushing himself to the point of endurance for reasons he doesn't even necessarily fully understand, yeah. and because it's it's just his role, and he and and I love that these games isolate him in environments with villains because that is where he is at home, mm-hmm. and that's it's they are such smart games, and I love Batman as a character so much, and you put him together with the, just the perfect Batman game that has to be on my top ten for me. It just has to be. Yeah, so. it was. It did not make my list, but it was definitely on like on the cutting block because I. I have played so much fucking Arkham City. Like, I, I, I have 100%ed Arkham City. I've beaten it on normal, I've beaten it on hard, I've beaten it on New Game Plus, and I've beaten every single challenge room and gotten three stars with all the characters, which is Batman, uh, Catwoman, Robin, and Nightwing. So, and I should say, the, all the characters control in different and interesting ways. Yeah. Like, the Catwoman portions of the game I love, because I love playing as Catwoman. Like, they, yeah. the same way they make you feel like you're Batman, they do that for Catwoman, because they reimagine the basic game mechanics around someone who is more, you know, acrobatic. Yeah, yeah, and is a lot quicker, but is easier to, get, to hurt. Right. Yeah. She doesn't have this massive armor on. Mm-hmm. But it's great, and, and you know... You, Unless you play the Wii U version, which is the Armored Edition, then she does have armor on. Oh, really? Yes. That's dumb. In any case, and and you can't praise enough the work Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill do in these yeah, games. Okay. And, you know, I think it's very fitting that Mark Hamill chose this to be his last appearance as the Joker because what a send off! Yeah, it's 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 really great. Yeah, Arkham City is a it's a hell of a fucking game, dude. Yeah, so that's Arkham City. That is my number seven favorite game of all time, Sean. Oh yes, it is now time for my number seven favorite game of all time. Like the like best version of those old school Grand Theft Auto open world games, where it's like they 
sort of figured out how to have the, like the really silly over the top like version of the satire that they did and then with GTA 4 they dialed that down so much it made it really serious and I did really like that where a lot of people weren't really fond of that, of that like sort of change in tone and I think Red Dead Redemption still has the very serious tone and has that serious aspect of the satire but I think it's able to it's since it's set in the like the old west and it's not like so current it's able to handle that serious tone so much better so I think it's like Red Dead Redemption is sort of like the ultimate maturation of the Rockstar game so far to me, and that's sort of what why it's so remarkable. And it's the fact that it's set in the Old West, which is one of my favorite genres, is the Western. And it's so rare to get a Western game, and it's even rarer to get a good Western game, and there's only one time that you get one of the best games ever made that is also a Western game, and that's Red Dead Redemption. And it's just able to encapsulate that genre, what's so amazing about that genre that has been done in film, and just replicate that in video game form to such amazing accuracy that the Red Dead Redemption is easily one of my favorite Western-themed things of all time. Like, it's up there with The Searchers and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's just like, this nails this, like, you know, this fucking Red Dead Redemption. It nails this theme of the anti-hero redeeming himself in this lawless world, like wandering from town to town, killing people even though he doesn't want to, you know, that's, that is what the Western is, that's like what a samurai story is, they're basically the same thing, and like, that's the key to what a Western is, and so, you know, it, it's very easy for that to become very stale and just overdone, the fact that the genre and the theme like are so closely tied together, but I think Red Dead Redemption manages to find new ground, make that very interesting, and it takes so full advantage of the fact that it's a video game because you get so involved and wrapped up in being this character, John Marston, and 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 it's sort of like slowly revealing his backstory to you as a player over the course of the game, and you sort of like understanding who he is, and sort of like it, it's like Red Dead Redemption sort of becomes a role playing game at some point in the most real sense of where you're like. I am playing as John Marston. Like I I'm I'm now inhabiting this character and sort of the character as written is sort of come a little bit towards my personality and me as a person while I'm playing the game sort of moves a little bit more towards his personality. It's very similar to like, you know, if you've ever acted, it's like it has that weird similar effect to you as you're playing the game and it's so fascinating to me. And so for me, my experience with with Red Dead Redemption is kind of the polar opposite of what it was with yours where I did not, over the course of playing Red Dead Redemption, fuck around almost at all. There's only, like, a, a few times where I was like, I'm going to completely ignore the story, just go, like, off the beaten path and just become a fucking maniac for five seconds. That only happened once or twice. The most significant time that happened was I was in Mexico, and I found a random town in the middle of nowhere where there was, like, a church or some building that on the top of that building was just a fucking Gatling gun. I was like... I'm just gonna save the game, and okay, let's like let's go. Just loaded up the Gatling gun, killed everybody in Mexico. Realistically, just like just slaughtered that entire town and just killed every fucking police officer that came. That town was just was just a mass grave. But that was like the one the one real significant time. Other than, and then I threw that one chick on the train tracks. She was she she deserved it. <laughs> but yeah, Red Dead Redemption. Other than those few times, I played it super seriously, super in character, got so immersed and involved in what was going on, just sort of exploring the world and inhabiting this really richly realized Western world. And then, you know, it's... Oh, God. Red Dead Redemption is so fucking good. I played... It's like, I played that game just so 
much, just so much when it, right when it came out, where I beat it to completion, then played it again, beat it to completion. And when I say to completion, I don't just mean I beat the story. I mean, both times I played the game, I beat the story and, like, every single little, like, you know, like, shoot two rabbits and you unlock the next sharpshooter, like, those things. I beat those on both of my playthroughs. I just, like, played this game to fucking death, and I loved every single minute of it. It's the, the story is so well realized. I mean, you talked a lot about the story, and I agree with basically everything you said. I want to talk about the moment that is personified by the song we played for this. Okay, sure. Uh, the, the song is Far Away, yeah. and it's when you go to Mexico for the first time. And that really is a turning point for the game, because you're, you're getting... It's the first real step towards what John Marston is looking for. Yeah. And you go down to Mexico, and it... As you're riding your horse down into Mexico, it plays this song, and it doesn't... Suddenly it feels like the rules of video games are being rewritten. Almost. Like, you're going yeah. in, and it's just playing this song. It's not just background score. It's a real song. Yeah, it's a lyrical song. Song, yeah. And it's so rare in video games. And it's a beautiful song. You're listening to it, and it's just this sense of total isolation, and sort of, but also freedom. These open plains, you're on your horse. That is one of the most powerful moments, not just in a game, but in any story I've ever seen. Yeah. And that interactive component where you are this character, and you're just riding down with this music playing... That, to me, that's Red Dead Redemption. That yeah. is Red Dead Redemption in a nutshell. That moment is phenomenal. Yeah, and then they replicate... There's a very similar moment in that, like, the end of the game when you finally are able to go back to your family and it's like they play a different song there. Yeah. Yeah, that is, yeah it's definitely... Like, like Rockstar also did a similar thing in Max Payne 3 where they just straight up play a lyrical song during the game, which is, like, for, for an action game, that is, like, just a crazy thing to do for both Max Payne 3 and Red Dead Redemption because it's just, like... Just nobody does that because no. it's it's clearly something that's like you just have to trust that the pacing is going to work out at a certain point because that's the main reason why it doesn't happen because it's like lyrical songs as opposed to instrumental songs. It's like you can't just like loop lyrical songs over and over again or whatever. It's like you can't. It's you just like throw extra tracks in to like make the music more dynamic with the lyrical song. You just play the goddamn song, and yeah, like and with one of the like just with Red Dead Redemption, like some of the things where it's like to like. You know, my favorite thing about the game was just inhabiting the world, which is basically what you said for you too, and like, and just like to highlight that fact where stuff, like, just little details of stuff that I just like unconsciously did, where it's like I just like named my horses, like for no reason whatsoever. It was just like the first horse I got, I was just like, I'm gonna name you Argo. It's like because I don't know, I like Greek mythology, so it's like I named him Argo. And then like over the course of the game, as I got new horses, I got a horse that named him Belmont. I got one named Kentucky. I named my last horse Shadow Facts because Lord of the Rings is cool. And like, and, and then also I would just like, you know, when I got down to Mexico, you unlock the like Mexican poncho. It's like I wore that poncho all throughout Mexico. And it's like, I'd like, instead of just like wearing random outfits at will, just to like sort of like more immerse myself in the world, I was like, you know, I'm going to change my costume as it makes sense for my costume to change. So it's like when I was in like sort of the starting area eventually if if you're not a complete monster and you, and you end up getting a like certain amount of good honor you you unlock like a lawman's like duster coat so it's like okay when i lock that i'm going to wear that then we get to get into mexico i wear the poncho because you're not going to wear a coat down in mexico and then when i get back up into like the eastern more civilized sections of the world i you end up unlocking the uh sort of like the black version of that coat because you get the legend of the west or whatever from locking for beating all the challenges and so it's, then i put it on there and it's like this interest, like it's just like the game brought out something in me I absolutely did not expect it to do. Of just like I want to inhabit and play act as this character in this world because it's so engaging, it's so beautifully realized. The graphics are so incredible, and not just like the 
the technical quality of the graphics, which are certainly amazing, but the aesthetic qualities that they bring out of just like, you know, westerns are some of the most beautiful films ever made because the the locations they go to are have this, such a harsh beauty to them and such rich earthy colors that that they they replicate that so amazingly in this game and I, and the way the color palette sort of changes as you like get to Mexico and, and and when you like move to the more eastern areas and it like feels very distinct it's just incredible. I also want to talk about the sound design like yeah. just the sounds of your horse moving yeah the sort of this that very western sound of just your boots crinkling in the dirt. Things like that. Just every little detail is in place. Yeah, it's and like with the horse. Like you said, the horse is the best vehicle in, in, in like video games, and I completely agree in the sense of like when every when now whenever I play, you know, if I play like Skyrim and you can get a horse in Skyrim, it just feels so lifeless to me. Like the reason I named my horses is because the horses felt like goddamn horses. You know, they yeah. seemed like living creatures because they had like an AI component to them. Obviously, not when you're riding them. That's a very common thing. But even while you're riding the horse. The horse doesn't just like it doesn't act like a car or a motorcycle. You know, it's a horse. It's a living being. It's not just going to drive off or like run off a goddamn hill. Although you can make it do it. You you can make it if you work hard enough. And you're a complete fucking. What the fuck is wrong with you? I didn't even know you could because I never tried. But like, but the horse. When I say like the horse that does not jump off the the cliffs, like what that means is that like when you're heading towards the cliff, it will naturally turn away, and it's like you're. You know, riding on a path that there are cliffs on either side, it's sort of like, sort of teeters in between because it's sort of unsure of its footing. Like that, the way the horse behaves and moves is so incredible and animates too. Oh, yeah. Visually, I wonder if they mocapped a horse. They probably, I imagine they probably mocapped horses, and I, I want to see behind the scenes footage of that. But That'd be great. I mean, the, the animation way- of like the muscle moving behind the skin because like it's just yeah. something that you can, is so vivid that it's like you don't think about most of the time but it's like when you see it it's like that's the way that's the way a horse looks when it moves and the way it's muscles like because the horse like the legs are so strong and it's like the muscles are so dense behind the skin it's like you can really see that yeah I mean just so you know if you want to get your horse off the cliff you've just got to move it in such a way kind of keep pushing but kind of lightly until it kind of just slips and then it falls you're probably going to live but it's going to die and then you skin it and then find a new one how did you play this? Like, it's so unbelievable that we had just so completely the exact opposite experience with this game. Like, it's... I got the Dark Horse pretty early on, actually, and that's one I never killed, because that Dark Horse, I earned that, man. That Dark Horse got me. I got the Dark Horse. Yeah. I had, like... I, I should say, my bounty at the end of the game, that's my favorite, that's my proudest thing about Red Dead, is I had, like, a $30,000 bounty, both in Mexico and the U.S., and in Mexico, you get the Mexican army on your ass? That's tough. No, it's not. Not if you've got a goddamn Gatling gun. Oh God, I yeah, tell well, you what. All right, so, so you did not kill your horses. No, God, I, I gave them names. Like, what kind of monster would I be? Is like, well, then I'm you... going to name you Belmont. Bam! <laughs> Shoot him in the fucking face. Well, I'm going to name you Old Yeller, and well, you're going to find out why that's funny later, horse. But then you can skin it and eat it and consume Belmont and feel that. Well, no, you bit. can't. You I'm can't kidding. eat the horse. You can skin it and sell it. So, but, did you even know you could sell the skins to traders? I did sell them, yes. Okay. But why? Because <laughs> you you never bought anything. Why did you sell them? I needed money to pay bounties and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Red Dead is my favorite game to talk about. You in this fucking I don't understand how you played this game. It's just like a crazy person. That's how I yeah, played like it. A goddamn maniac. I it's like Red Dead Redemption. 
easily one of the best games ever made. Certainly, I think, the best open-world game I've ever played. And, yeah, like, you know, I'm super excited for GTA V and to see, like, what lessons the, uh, Rockstar are going to take from this and also Max Payne 3 and, like, reapply it to their sort of flagship franchise. I hope you can ride a horse in Grand Theft Auto V. I know you do, because you want to ride them off goddamn cliffs. I'd ride them, it's into, not, it's just no, like I'd ride them it's... into trucks and stuff. Oh, that's true, yeah, because you'd be... Or, like, yeah, like ride the them through helicopter blades and, you know... Huge, <laughs> just complete fucking monster. Anyways, that's Red Dead Redemption. Your number seven. My yeah. number six is... There are loved ones in the glory whose dear forms you often miss when you close your earthly story will you join them in their bliss Bioshock Infinite by Irrational Games and 2K is my sixth favorite game of all time. Came out earlier this year for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. And PC. And PC. I forgot about that. And, uh, you know, I guess it goes back to what I said when we talked about this game on the podcast. We did a full episode about Bioshock yeah. Infinite. It's like three and a half hours long. If you want to hear us talk about this game, go listen to that episode. Yeah. It's a really good one. We go really in-depth on this because, boy, does this game give you a lot to talk about. And, you know, if I want to sum up why I love it, that's why I love it. Because this game, not only is it just a super fun and entertaining and enjoyable and immersive uh, you know, gameplay style, and it is so refined and so well done, but it's just one of the best stories I've seen in years, video game or no. Yeah. And it is so provocative and, uh, provocative, and it is so character-driven. And it deals with all these really big themes uh, about, you know morality and sort of social structures and racism and classism and things like this and religion but at the end of the day it's really just this very poignant intimate small scale human story about what guilt does to the human soul and that's that's the story and it is so effectively told and you know they do this through at the end this you know very big metaphysical uh, discussion yeah. and and you know winds up being very sci-fi in the end in that way but Again, it's just the the punch is an intimate, emotional, poignant punch, and I'll say it. I'll say the same thing I said on the podcast. Though that last half hour of Bioshock Infinite is the hardest I've ever been hit by a game, in terms of just one concentrated burst. And it's not like Bioshock Infinite is you know just decent and then it has a great ending. Yeah. It's great, 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 and then the ending shoots it into the pantheon because that's an ending that really rewrites your entire understanding of the game, but in a way that is organic yeah. and fair and adds to your understanding of it. And augments it. And, you know, again, it's not a game... I, I don't want to spoil this. It's still a new game. We're not going to spoil it here. Yeah. So I don't want to do that. So there's not a... I don't know if there's a ton I want to say about it here because we did talk about this on the podcast fairly recently. But Booker DeWitt and Elizabeth are just two of the great video game characters of this generation, I think. Great, great performances by Troy Baker and Courtney Draper. Um, just phenomenal work by them. Great... Uh, you know, a, a relationship they have in the story and the chemistry they share um, and how that relationship develops in context of this larger story um, 
and that story itself is so great, and it's for the most part well paced. We've talked about Bioshock Infinite has a pacing issue, yeah, sort yeah. of midway through, but it's it's not like huge or crippling or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a thing you kind of notice where it becomes more overtly video gamey than it probably needs to be in its story structure. Yeah, um, but other than that, it's just really darn well paced, builds beautifully. It sort of starts from this. It's it's hard to say. It starts from a relatively sane place because you you shoot into the skies and you're on a floating city. I mean, and all yeah, that. the game begins with a conversation that's like like just that you're like trying to engage in this conversation with these two characters and they're just completely ignoring you and having a completely different conversation. You're like these two people are really wacky. They just leave you off on a lighthouse. So I'd say it doesn't start off on a sane note whatsoever. There is no sanity in Bioshock Infinite. But it starts from a place of relative sanity to what <laughs> compared Bioshock. to where it goes to certainly. Yes, but it builds to that so beautifully and flawlessly. And, you know, this game, the world of Columbia, is just one of the best exercises in world building I've seen in in anything. In video games or movies or TV shows or novels or whatever, that is such a fully realized, fully detailed, fully thought out world where every aspect of it plays into the larger themes of the game. It all ties back into the main character arc of Booker DeWitt. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is so much fun to explore. I mean, I started another playthrough of this game the other night. Um, and just playing that first hour again and going through and just seeing Columbia for the first time and going even in more in-depth, because I knew what was going to happen, so I knew I wasn't in a hurry. Yeah. And just go around and really look at everything, listen to everyone, hear the people praying to Thomas Jefferson and stuff like that. And, and I mean, I should say the writing in this game is so terrific. The dialogue and everything. Um, but yeah, and, and I think, you know, more than anything, that's what hooks you initially with Bioshock Infinite, is just as fully realized as Rapture seemed. Columbia is even more so. That is, Columbia is just a phenomenal world for a video game, and a world that changes so dynamically over the course of the game, where it would be very easy for them to rest on their laurels of how they built Columbia initially, but that's not the Columbia you're with for, like, the last half of the game. Yeah. Because Columbia changes so drastically, and you see so many different parts of it, and there are these pre-existing social structures in Columbia that you get to visit. And I just feel like every aspect of the game is so well thought out, and then on top of that the way you play through it is with this really addictively fun and sometimes it's not even fun sometimes it's just harrowing gameplay style mm-hmm. where it's a, it's just a great first person shooter yeah without a doubt yeah the great weapons and then you've got your sort of vigors, vigors in this them, game yeah. yeah your kind of biotic power kind of yeah. thing I always want to call them plasmids because that's yeah. what they're called in Bioshock 1 right and they're, they're super fun and addictive and you can definitely customize the gameplay style to what you feel is best what you're most comfortable with it encourages you to be very creative again because again you go into these large open skyboxes literally because you can just go around on your skyhook and, and shoot around and stuff and you've got a ton of enemies and it's like well how am I going to do this and sometimes it's you're going to be a little careful and you're going to try to do a strategy and sometimes it's, oh god, this is violent, I am so horrified right now. But that's part of the game. I mean, there were a lot of complaints when the game came out about how, oh, it's too violent, this doesn't make sense, all ludonarrative dissonance. And I never felt that about Bioshock Infinite. Yeah, I agree. I played it through again the other night, like I said, for the first hour. And again, when the first act of violence happens, it matters. And what you start doing matters. When you start hitting the Y button or the triangle and just bashing policemen's faces in it's not supposed to be hey isn't this fun it's what am I doing and that's what Booker's probably thinking is god I didn't want to be doing this why am I doing this and that becomes a theme obviously that you know grows and grows and grows over the game with these ideas of guilt and and Booker DeWitt being such a thoroughly broken person and, and what that means and I think it is one of the best stories we've had in years about religion and guilt yeah and religion as a sort of social I don't know what to say, but it's, you know, something that sort of suppresses... Yeah, it's particularly living in America, like, a lot of the themes that Bioshock Infinite deals with is very provocative, because it's sort of like, 
takes us this like sense of patriotism and American exceptionalism and like turns it on its ear in a lot of ways and like religion is a big part of that. Yeah, it feels very current. It feels very prescient in many yeah. ways. It's you know it's it's viewing the lens this all through a lens of American sort of pseudo history. Yeah, but it's it's still very much about today. You're saying how, that like the early 1900s in America like there wasn't this like crazy floating city that some crazy like quantum mechanics lady built? No. That sounded a lot like Jennifer Hale. Yes. <laughs> but it definitely it is very much you know a game about how we use religion in this country to wipe away the s- sins of our past yeah. and how religion is something that can be used in very dangerous ways. Uh, and if you, if you try to use something like that this larger system you try to believe in a god to wipe away your own sins and stop taking responsibility on individual and societal levels yeah. what that ha- what happens when you do that and that's a question worth asking in America yeah. and it's a question Bioshock Infinite asks in very provocative and very smart ways um, I just love the hell out of this game this is one of my very favorite games of this generation you'll see most of my, the games on my list are from this console generation and I have not talked about that yet but it's definitely something where I feel like gaming is so current to me mm-hmm. and the masterpieces are still being made and Bioshock Infinite is to me just an absolute masterpiece I really love it to death I'm very comfortable with where I put it on my list. I think it deserves this high spot for me because it very much affected you know, my understanding of what games can do, even ha- having been a gamer most of my life. So I really love this game. Yeah, for me, Bioshock Infinite was one of the ones... It's not on my list. It got pretty close to being in one of the lower spots, and I certainly think it is one of the best games ever made and certainly absolutely phenomenal, and I, it's like it just was like... It was so close to that on that cutting block, but yeah... Bioshock Infinite is it is fucking incredible. So, yeah. All right. So that was my number six. Sean, you ready for your number six? Uh, yeah, I am. Yes, I'm ready for my number six all-time favorite video game. I want to just go play it right now. Really. So, can we do that? Xbox 360. This is a this was a hard this was a hard game for me to figure out like what to do with because I certainly knew a Halo game needed to be in my top ten list and like I've struggled over the, as much as you can struggle with something like this over the past couple of years trying to figure out like what is my favorite Halo game but like it is it is a hard thing for me because I love the campaign do Halo Combat Evolved so goddamn much because it is it is certainly one of the most important video games I've ever played for me personally in terms of getting me involved deeper into video games. Like, it's just like, there's Sonic 3 and Knuckles and Halo 1 are like the two video games that's like, if I, if I did not encounter those video games, I might not be into video games in my life. So, so it's so fun to me in that regard, and it's sort of some of my first multiplayer experiences were having LAN parties with my friends on Halo 1. Like, you know bring your Xbox over to someone else's house style and get a long goddamn Ethernet cable out. And Halo 1 is is an absolutely phenomenal game. Halo 2 is also a phenomenal game with great multiplayer, but a really flawed campaign. Like, Halo Reach is also a game I really, really adore, but also has some flaws and doesn't quite capture the magic that the older games did to me. And Halo 4, likewise, 
is is a really really phenomenal game, but it has like the campaign has some serious story problems and some like really lackluster levels, and like the and the magic is not one hundred percent there for me anymore. So it's like, it's so really when I was looking at it holistically with Halo Three, I think the campaign is certainly is not quite as good as Halo One's campaign. I mean, like in a, not in just a nostalgic but a serious like game design way. I still think Halo One's campaign is superior in a lot of regards, but Halo 3's campaign is like close behind it. And but it's the multiplayer and the experiences I had with the multiplayer of Halo 3 with my friends online that like this game came out in 2007, so right when I was getting into high school and sort of like the entirety of me being in high school I spent like the game I kept on going back to with multiplayer was Halo 3 and just I spent so much time online playing games with my friends. And Halo 3 is just a... Was, was sort of a revelation. I mean, like, back in 2007, there was... And there's still, for today, is no game that was more heavily marketed and more heavily anticipated, at least by, like, the console of, like, Xbox gamers, than Halo 3. Because Halo 2 had finished in 2004 with, like, the most... Like, fuck you cliffhanger of all time where Master Chief's going back to Earth and is like, what are you doing? And he's like, sir finishing this fight and it cuts the black it's like fuck, fuck you god damn it god fucking shit and so you have to wait three fucking years well luckily like whoever like I guess jo- Joseph Stanton who wrote that line finishing this fight goddamn genius because he also happened to make like the greatest marketing like buzzword like term Ever. in the history of video games because it's just like everything for Halo 3 is finish the fight finish the fight finish the motherfucking fight. Hey, remember that time when we made a game and it ended on this bullshit cliffhanger? Now we're going to be able to finish it by Halo 3. And so, like, you know, they got it. had fucking Halo 3 Slurpees, they had Halo 3 Mountain Dew. It was fucking ridiculous. And so I got Halo 3. I got the Legendary Edition with, like, the really cool Master Chief helmet that is, like, a very prized possession of mine. And played Halo 3 with, like, the campaign to completion... And one night, you know, sat through the credits. It's just like kind of awestruck because Halo 3's story, well, it has some problems here and there, and just like it gets, it feels a little bit too involved in its own mythologies in a lot of ways, which is kind of a problem with most of the Halo games past one to me. But it still is able to deliver such an emotional experience for someone who's been who enjoys the Halo story so much. It like gives you all these just amazing character moments, and there's a lot of you know, it came out in 2007, so many like amazing characters that you've you've sort of come to know over the course of these games die these really tragic deaths that really affect you particularly Sergeant Johnson rest in peace man sorry He's, sorry Sarge we couldn't yeah. save you yeah so there was all of that in the campaign is just incredible in a lot of ways you know the scarab fights in particular are some of my most memorable m- moments in gaming of just like every single time I play through the Halo 3 campaign which I've done multiple times now whenever I encounter a Scarab battle, I want to tackle it in a completely different way because they're so open, and it's, and it's like sort of what makes Halo combat great and what sets it apart from most first-person shooters is it's so open, it's so free, it's got this sort of sandbox element of we're just going to put a bunch of AI enemies in this room and you're going to have access to whatever like weapons you have and have had access to up to this point in the level and figure out some way to deal with it and like the scare fights are like the ultimate version of that because you have this ridiculously huge powerful enemy that is actually controlled by AI unlike the scripted sequence in Halo 2 and it's just like how the fuck do I blow up this giant fucking walking tank thing and 
the best way to do it is to get a giant alien motorcycle, drive it off of a ramp, land on the goddamn thing, blow up its control panel, get back on the motorcycle, and drive off as it explodes. Or get into a, like, flying helicopter thing with your best buddy and, like, have him drop off onto one of the scarabs because there's two of them, and then you go off and jump off the hornet onto the other one and you both destroy the scarabs in synchronicity. Also, really awesome way to deal with those fights. Those scarab fights are just some of my favorite gaming memories, and I love doing them. No matter how many times I play Halo 3, those are just, there's such a rush to those fights. Yeah, so much fun. But then on top of that, like, you know, it has obviously a phenomenal campaign, and there's so much built into the campaign, like the skulls and the terminals that I had so much fun with, like, you know, other than the, with the exception of a few skulls, like, particularly the I would have been your daddy, you cannot get that skull without looking up online, because you have to, like, jump through rings in a certain sequence, and it's bullshit. But, like, I found almost all the skulls and terminals, like, actually exploring the game. It's one of the few games that I, like, actually actively sought out the collectibles, so I had a lot of fun finding those skulls and then going back in like with a bunch of my friends and going in and being like hey dude like the skull on the ark is over here in this like weird little cubby up on one of these walls and stuff like that and that like had such a fun experience with that and then like playing score attack co-op campaign that was a lot of fun and there's just and, like getting the achievements in Halo 3 like Halo 3 was the first game where I was like I want to actually get the achievements because it's a Halo game I love Halo and like having like to go through and get like a certain score on all the campaign missions having to find the skulls having to find the terminals that was a lot of fun and then finally getting into multiplayer which was so fully fleshed out with the Forge map editor and with theater that allowed you to go back like watch at your saved games like being able to watch like rewatch the games you played with your friends and being like, dude, look at this ridiculous goddamn moment where you had your sniper rifle and I was throwing a plasma grenade at you and just, like, through sheer fucking luck, you plucked that plasma grenade right out of my hand and it blew up in my hand and killed me. Like, those moments were amazing. And so Halo 3, with its multiplayer suite, just, like, was so perfect in so many ways of just... And and for me, like, where I was in my life and, like, with my friends and, like, having all the free time you do when you're in high school was just such a perfect moment of just, like, time in your life to play a a multiplayer shooter where it's like, I played ungodly hours of Halo 3. Like, Halo 3 is easily the game I have played the most in my entire life, and I have played some games a fucking lot. But if you count, like, multiplayer, Halo 3, far and away, like, I've probably played Halo 3 for over, like, one week of actual real-world time. Like, way more than that, probably. Because, you know, well, the game's been out for six years, so that's not completely insane. But yeah, like, Halo 3, playing custom matches, where it's, you know, I've, like, I made a, a custom game type that I'm immensely fond of called Thor, where you have, uh, like, you run really fast, you have really low gravity, and you have gravity hammers and Spartan lasers. That's a ton of fun, like, finding, like, like everyone just being able to come up with ridiculous game types of, like, you're invincible... But, like, the only way for you to be killed is, like, through a, like, a splatter or whatever because it's just a glitch in the physics system. So we're just going to get on mongooses and I'm going to have a gravity hammer and smash it. And it's like, if you smash the mongoose, the dude on the mongoose, in just the right way, the mongoose will sort of, like, kill him somehow even though he's invincible. Like, there's, there's so many amazing game types and, like, just moments through Halo 3. And the game, because of the Forge editor, was able to evolve so much over the course of its life in a way that console games had not been able to up to that point. It was like, you know, you could keep coming back to Halo 3 months later 
and just find like oh like there's all this new stuff going on like all what the fuck is this griffball thing I'll try that out or you know it's like hey like they you know they put out like amazing maps into the map packs that were a lot of fun to play and so like Halo Three as far as like Halo games go to me it's sort of like Halo One has like the brightest moment in my like nostalgic memory and has like still to me the best campaign and the best story in that aspect of it but as an overall package Halo 3 is like as an overall package Halo 3 is one of the best overall packages of any game I've ever played you know counting the success of Halo games of like it's just got everything it's got an amazing campaign it's got a fully featured like co-op system for the campaign it's got multiplayer it's got Unbelievable customizability in the multiplayer, like unparalleled customizability for a campaign or for a console game up to that point. Then it's got this fucking save theater thing, like that's amazing. Like no console game has ever had that, and it has this really engaging, uh, like easy to understand map editor that's like sort of contextualized, and that you like you're playing the game as you edit the map instead of it being like you know creating a map in StarCraft where it's, it feels like you're like you know, if you're using Adobe Photoshop or something like a proper, like, computer program, it's fun to just go into Forge and fuck around. So as an overall package, Halo 3 is so incredible, and I have so many fond memories of it, and I still think in terms of just the raw gameplay, there's something magical to Halo 3, and it's, in its simplicity of, like, coming out the same year as Call of Duty 4, so not having the, like, really heavy progression elements and like it still having this arena shooter style of like there are just weapons on the map and that's like you know map control is a really big part of it and understanding the flow of the map understanding like being able to control the power weapons being able to understand where your enemies spawn and like com- making strategies off of that that's the kind of multiplayer shooter experience I really enjoy it's the kind of multiplayer shooter I fell in love with and Halo 3 is the absolute epitome of that to me and I love Halo 2, and you will hear me... I love Halo 2, the game, but I love I Halo... I love Halo 2, the game, also. It's yes. got the best multiplayer maps of any Halo oh, game. Absolutely, but I love Halo also, and you will hear me mirror much of what Sean just said, albeit for a different Halo game, later in this countdown. Yeah, I'm so. really looking forward to, to Halo Wars, your, your number one game of all time. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion. <laughs> Have you ever played Halo Wars? No, I've not played Halo Wars, no. Halo Wars is actually pretty good. It gets a bad rap. No, Halo Spartan Assault is my number one favorite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, because they gave you the beta version of the game to, exclusively yeah. to WGTC Radio. Yes, absolutely. Easily the number one game of all time. All right, so that was your number six. That yeah. means we're moving on to my number five favorite game of all time. PS3. We literally talked about this two podcasts ago. Yeah. So really go listen to that episode if you want to hear my thoughts Definitely. on it. I think we're going to keep this one somewhat brief. Yeah. Because, you know, again, we just said our full piece on it. And if you're going to get into The Last of Us, you need a couple hours, I think. But I'll say what I said last time in brief, which is that more than anything else, The Last of Us has the just absolute smallest amount of ludonarrative dissonance I've ever seen in a game, where the story and the gameplay and the character work and the violence and everything that happens all ties so seamlessly together to create this experience 
that is really kind of unlike anything we've seen in games before, and is one of the most qualified contenders yet for the title of best game ever made. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it is in that discussion, and that is uh, amazing to me. And I think it is just such a phenomenal story, and I love how the gameplay complements that story at every turn, and that you know. So much of the character development for the main character that you are undergoing is really just playing through the fights and the the stealth aspects and understanding this apocalyptic world through how you play it. Yeah. And uh, I said this last time, and I want to expand upon it a little bit. I really do think, looking at my list and looking at the past couple years uh, of games and stuff, this and and sort of the Halo series in general are the best console controls I can think of. And I think in particular, Last of Us, it, it, you know, Naughty Dog created this sort of flawless and complex and very intuitive control scheme. But what amazes me so much about it is that it even goes to the limits of sort of making like tactile use of the tactile qualities of the PlayStation controller itself. You know, we have this issue with the PlayStation controller. I'm trying to pull it out here to kind of look at it while I'm talking about it. Where, you know, it's got these thumbsticks that are, they're fine, but they're a little fidgety. They're kind of yeah, they're, they're really compared to the 360 uh, thumbsticks. They're a lot loose. They're a lot looser, uh, and the, you know the, the triggers are kind of dumb. Yeah. And they, they they don't depress in the ways you want a trigger to depress. But they're perfect for The Last of Us. Yeah. Because The Last of Us, the way you move, you have to have this just incredible range on the on the uh, control stick to kind of move um, the character to move Joel in just as slightly as you want, as much as you want. It's it's very those those that feels really right to the kind of precision of the movement. And then they use the the L two and R two buttons for you know running, and then using your hearing sort of vision thing yeah. you have. And it's the same thing where. Uh, when I run in a when I sprint in a game now and I'm not using L2 on the PlayStation 3 controller, it feels wrong because having that physical feedback where the trigger just doesn't feel like it wants to be depressed, yeah. that feels like running. Like that's a tactile way to represent running on a controller, and that's kind of representative to me of how well thought out every aspect of the game is. That something as simple as that on the control pad, just assigning it to that button, is kind of a stroke of genius and draws you into the game. You feel like at all times, whatever character you're playing. You're in total control of that person. There's no wall separating your movement and theirs. That's kind of what it feels like. And it kind of proves to me that motion control is bullshit because just with a controller, yeah. you, are t- you feel like you are moving that person. And you are so immersed in this game. And of course, you know, what makes Last of Us great isn't, you know, that's something that makes it great, but what makes it a masterpiece is the story they tell. And it's really not a narrative-heavy game. The narrative is yeah. fairly simple. It's Joel and Ellie, they got to get to the Fireflies. Yeah. And there's going to be some bumps along the way. And some really creepy people na- voiced by Nolan North. Yeah. Or one. Nolan North does not voice he, multiple creepy yeah. people. It would, it would, that would be great if, like, the whole game was, like, they go to another town, then encounter a different, like, creepy Nolan North character, but they're all different, like, they have very different voices. Yeah. That's Nolan North could do it. Creepy Nolan North. That should be the next Naughty Dog game. I'd play Nolan it. North. In any case, yeah, so it's got this, you know, story that's fairly simple, but it's all about the characters. It's a really great character study, and especially on the last half of this list, you're going to hear me talking a lot about characters and character work in games, because that's very important to me, and I I love, uh, characters are what draw me into games. Joel and Ellie are two of the greats. And in the relationship they share, and the chemistry they share, and the just phenomenal performances, it, body and and voice, because they did yeah. motion capture. And I watched a video of of a scene with them doing the motion capture, and it's uncanny to hear. Was it the one where with uh, Bill? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And to hear that voice coming out of Troy Baker, but Troy Baker not looking like Joel. Yeah, it's like it's, it is something that uh, 
the the uh, game director has said in interviews of like when they were casting the role of Joel, and it's like Troy. If you don't know what Troy Baker looks like, he's like he is such a pretty boy. I mean, he's a really handsome guy. Yeah, he's got like you know kind of like frosty blonde hair. He's really tall, kind of skinny. He looks yeah. kind of like you know like a really cleaned up grunge type guy. You yeah, know? and and Joel is this like fifty year old just grizzled ass Texan dude who breaks people's faces you know like that is not Troy Baker at all so yeah it's really fascinating like seeing this like when they were casting the role and Troy Baker comes in it's like who the fuck is this pretty boy like what is he who does he think he is coming into like like do a role for this and it's like oh god okay maybe just don't judge a book by its cover don't judge a Troy Baker by its cover yes and so those performances are great the relationship they share is so fascinating and it gets to this point at the end where, you know, the, the last third of the game, the winter section and then the spring section, so turns your your conception of the game into you know, what you've been doing, suddenly sort of you and your, the violence you've been committing is on the table, and yeah. it's all out there, and you're analyzing this, and you get to this end point where, you know, I said Bioshock Infinite is my favorite game ending of all time. Last of Us, though, is very close to that, because that ending, which really I, I consider the ending kind of the entire spring portion, because that's what yeah. informs everything that happens, and it made me feel more morally ambiguous, I think, than any story I've seen in recent memory, it's, yeah. or ever, maybe. It is just, you finish that game, and you just kind of sit there for 10, 20 minutes, just trying to process what you've done, what happened, what might happen next in the lives of these characters, and how you feel about that morally, if there is any clear way to feel about it in an ethical or moral stance, and I really don't think there necessarily is. It's it's such a, just amazing game, and amazing yeah. story, and... I know you wanted to talk about this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, so. for me, like, I, I had this on my honorable mentions, but when it was on your list, I was like, I'll just talk about it when we get to it here. Like, for me, last, like, a year from now, Last of Us would always, almost certainly going to be on my list, but, like, right now, like, just, I'm just so fresh off the game that it just feels kind of weird putting it in my top ten favorite games of all time. Like, I certainly think it's one of the best games ever made, but, like, like I haven't been able to reconcile, like, how that relates to, like, my favorite games. I certainly, like... Like this, like nowhere is this being like an insult to The Last of Us. It is like fucking play The Last of Us because oh my god, it is such a great game. But yeah, like I like I kind of wanted it to be somewhere on my list, but I was like, it doesn't feel right, like putting it on on this kind of list so soon. So and I was I actually was kind of expecting that might be a problem with a couple of the games here, but it really wasn't for me. Particularly just because I think gaming for me as a medium is one where it's easier to take a new thing and subsume it into your own personal canon at this point. For me, you know, I could play a game later this year and be like, yeah, that's one of the ten best games I've ever played. That's, that's, that's kind of what's, ha- you know, that's the sort of rhythm of video games right now is that, that, like I said, the canon is still being laid out. We're still fresh into its life as an art form. Um, yeah, but like, like, and I would agree with that with like the best part. But it's like there's such for me there's such a distinction between what I consider best and what I consider favorite. Well, that's it's what like, I was about to say is yeah. that, and there's kind of that balance there. But with Last of Us, there was no question for me that game had such an impact on me and was another game that just kind of rewrote my understanding of the limits of gaming. That if it weren't on this list for me, this list wouldn't feel right. It was all about kind of putting this list together and saying what set of titles more than ranking. There's what set of titles feels like that sums up my relationship to gaming. And Last of Us has to be on there for me. So, that's The Last of Us. That is my number five. Sean, you want to talk about your number five? I, I mean, no. We're just going to we're just going to rewrite. We're fuck what we've been doing up till now. I'm going to talk about my number seven. We're what actually we talked about. We're going to talk about his number five. Okay, fine.
Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time made by Nintendo for the Nintendo 64 in the year 1998, which for attentive listeners across these two podcasts so far will know is the third game from 1998 to feature on my list, which is fucking crazy. And for those that do need some reminding, the first one being StarCraft came out in 1998. Half-Life 1 also came out in 1998, and Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, 1998. So, if you are someone who really likes strategy games, and really likes first-person shooters, and really likes sort of just adventure games, you owe, you owe a lot to the year 1998, because those three genres got completely revolutionized by three completely different games in that year. So, 1998. Good fucking job, dude. But anyways... That's enough about 1998. Let's talk about Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time, my fifth favorite game of all time. Which is which is interesting to me because you know we talked about a little bit that two years ago on a very different podcast we made we made a list like this, and this featured very very highly on my list. I think it might have been my number two, and because Ocarina of Time is a fucking phenomenal game and it's easily one of the most like it's with I've mentioned before Sonic Three and Knuckles and then Halo Combat Evolved. In between that was Ocarina of Time, which is actually the real game that got that made me fall in love with video games as a thing. Like, Halo Combat Evolved sort of, like, opened my eyes to, like, this first-person shooter and, like, multiplayer gaming. It's like, Ocarina of Time was like, this is this whole experience, this, like, grand adventure that I can embark on, in th- like, through this game. And, like, I can inhabit this world and meet all these crazy characters and just go on this fantastical journey. And that's and it just transports you into this place, and it's the first game I've played that so completely did that. And so, man, where do you even start with Ocarina of Time? Like, for me... It's it is, boring. It, I, what the... Fuck you. What the fuck are you going... Go, for, go leave. Just go. Just, what are you saying? You I'm said, trolling. <laughs> you just said Ocarina of Time is boring. Go fuck yourself. I've you. never been able to get into it, but go on. Tell me why I should try to get into it. I already did because it takes you on a fantastical journey like no other experience. But for for Ocarina of Time, I mean, for me, my experience with it is sort of like I had played. I never had played to completion, but I had played Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo at friends' houses. So it wasn't like the the best way to try to experience that game because I didn't have a, new, a Super Nintendo. But with Ocarina of Time, yeah, it was the first game that sort of like transported me into like this other universe, so to speak, and I have a really interesting relationship with the Legend of Zelda franchise, because I fell in love with this game so much, and I have tried so hard to fall in love with other Legend of Zelda games, like, made after this, like, I still love Link to the Past a lot, too, but it's like, you know, I tried, I actually, I really like Majora's Mask, but past Majora's Mask, I really tried to get into Wind Waker, and it just didn't hook me, and I really tried to get into Twilight's Princess, seriously did not hook me and it's like to the point where it's like I so disliked Twilight Princess that I didn't even like bother to to get Skyward Sword and even try it so it's like for me like I I've, I had to come to a point to realize personally that I am not a fan of Legend of Zelda I am just a huge fan of Ocarina of Time because I think because because part of the problem is that I think Nintendo's tried to recapture what they hit with Ocarina of Time with each of the successive games, and every single time you do that, it's you're going to be further from the mark. And like, because you need there's such a sense of originality and creativity to Ocarina of Time because they were fucking blazing trails, man. Like, no other game like this had been made up till this point. Like, no third person adventure game, like the, the whole like the concept of like this lock on targeting thing, the Z targeting in the game, 
fucking crazy. Like, they, they, they came up with this, like, how do we do this, like, three-dimensional third-person combat? Like, how do you even do that? Because it's, it's some of the first 3D games ever made, or at least, like, the first, like, like good 3D games ever made was like, were, like, Super Mario 64 in Ocarina of Time. And so trying to figure out how to replicate this previously 2D experience into a 3D world... It's like it's so incredible that they like the first time they tried to do that, they fucking nailed it. And the the Zelda formula, which is, I think like the first time you, I think it's like sort of the thing that like the Zelda formula. Since it's a formula, the first time you encounter it is going to be the most interesting time you encounter it because that past that point you're just like, this is like the fifth forest temple I've ever played. But like playing Ocarina of Time, the way they structure out the game, where you begin the game as Link, this this kid living in Kokiri Forest. Where, like, all these other, like, sort of, like, child... They're not childs, because they're, like, th- sort of, like, nymph people, but they're all, like, kind of, like, small, little tiny people. And you sort of, like... You, you you wake up in this world, you meet Saria, who's your friend, and you you get this message sent to you by Navi, this fairy, who from the Deku Tree, who tells you, hey, like, Link, come talk to me. And the Deku Tree sort of, like, presides over this little, like, forest world. And you you go talk to him, and you realize, okay... There's something going on here. There's this like wizard named Ganondorf, and for some reason, I like he is he's telling me I need to embark on this journey. And oh, by the way, you're not a fairy link. Sorry, by the way, you you're actually you're a human being. So you're going to get old and grow up, and like all you're you're not like these these forest people. So you need to leave. And so you you know you get the spiritual stone from the Deku Tree, and like the moment where Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time becomes completely amazing, particularly the first time you played it. If you played it when you were a kid is once you leave Kokiri Forest and you go out and you go into Hyrule Field, Hyrule Field where that's where the uh, music we played at the beginning of the section came from, and you just see this huge, expansive field just out in front of you with, like, you can see, like, there's a huge fucking, like, volcano spewing ash up into the air in the background. There's, like, this, like, river off to the right, and you can see this ranch over to the left and sort of this, like, castle town area like, over these hills right in front of you, and you can see, like, if you, like, over to the left, you can just keep on going, like, as far as your eye can see, and there's stuff over there, and you're like, this, there is this world here that I can just go explore, and I can just go exist in, and it has so much personality, and there are all these interesting characters you encounter along the way, like, like the people of Lomlon Ranch with, like, Ingo and Marlin and all those people, and then you go into Castle Town, and there's just, like, people dancing around and playing fiddle music and, like, dogs running around the streets barking, and you go into, like, a mask shop where there's this really creepy fucking dude behind the counter who just says, like, hey, go walk around, find random people who want these masks, and we'll pay you money for the masks, and then you can give me that money. It's like, what the fuck is this? Like, you're, like, running some weird fucking pyramid scheme here, like, pervert mask dude. There's, like, a cool temple over to the right that has some really awesome choral music. But you have to go find Princess Zelda, so you go up to the castle, you sneak past guards, you run into Princess Zelda, and you find out, okay, there's this warlock Ganondorf dude, but everybody trusts him. But you know he is bad business, and you have to get the rest of the spiritual stones, and that's where you're, you embark on your quest, and you go to the... You, you visit the Gorons, and you see this whole other city living under a volcano. Then you visit the Zoras, like these fish people... And you go inside like this giant fish monster and rescue their princess. And then if you get all the spiritual stones together, and then you have to go to the Temple of Time because you realize, oh, I need to get the Master Sword because Ganondorf is going after the Triforce. If he gets the Triforce, he'll take over the world. So you have to get the Master Sword. Then you pull the Master Sword from its stone, and then all of a sudden, you are transported seven years in time where 
where you have actually aged the seven years because you've been placed in stasis, but like pulling the Master Sword from the from the Temple of Time is actually what allows Ganondorf access to the Triforce because it opens the door of time or whatever. And now you realize, okay, like shit is real because you you get out, you have your Master Sword, you leave the Temple of Time, and this vibrant, living, breathing, just infectious world that was Castle Town all of a sudden is completely decimated and the sky is overcast and you can see a ring of harsh fire over Death Mountain and you can see the castle has been destroyed and replaced in the background and all the houses are destroyed and burned to the ground and the the, the, the floor and the, the stones are covered in soot and the townspeople have been are dead and have been replaced with these zombies, these re-dead that, that stalk you and if you look into their eyes they freeze you in place and you have to run and leave Castletown and go back out into Hyrule Field where you see there are goats wandering around and skeletons rising from the ground and you go back to Lon Lon Ranch and see Marlin grown up but Ingo, like the old stagehand has taken over Lon Lon Ranch and is like sort of running it as a tyranny providing horses to Ganondorf's army but you manage to steal Epona from him and get your own horse and go out on this grand adventure and revisit Kokiri Forest and realize even Kokiri Forest, this once like elven paradise land, has been taken over by monsters and there are like their skeletons rising from the ground and like evil plant monsters that are growing out. And you have to go to the forest temple and reconnect with your childhood friend Saria. And just like the story just, and the adventure just goes on from there and is so fucking amazing. And especially when you encounter it when you're a kid, it is completely mind blowing and involving and immersive and fantastical in a way that nothing else had been up to that point with the exception of the movie The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and that's why I love this game so much is because it feels like that to me it feels like this just pure fantasy adventure in a way that so few things are able to capture by being lighthearted and extremely serious at the same time and like the one flaw that Ocarina of Time has is that at no point in the game do a Cyclops and a dragon fight each other. And that's it. That's the one complaint I have, is that unlike Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Cyclopses and dragons do not fight each other in this world. But that's it. Everything else is fucking perfect. And the Water Temple's a little bit bullshit, but... Still. Fucking Ocarina of Time, dude. It did nothing for me. Yeah, well, you're, you're a... You went around Red Dead Redemption and slaughtered every man, woman, and if there had been children, child... You could encounter... No, no, wait a second, wait a second. Can you kill people in Legend of Zelda? Not like random villagers, not really. Well, then I don't give a shit. Yeah, I know, because you're just yeah. this horrific monster. You can throw bombs at a giant Goron, and, like, okay. he doesn't die, but he, like, sort of pops up. For but the record, I did kill children in Bioshock Infinite. No, you couldn't kill children Oh, yes, you can! Are you sure? I thought oh, I was no, pretty no, sure no, 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 no. I killed. Infinite, you couldn't. No, I'm sorry, I killed the kid's mother and left him there crying. Yeah, That's yeah. what I did. Okay, I never like, mind. I but you know what? I Bioshock Infinite is getting swept off my list for that. Sure, yeah. But like, it's like I don't want to stop talking about Ocarina of Time yet. Like another like you know f- amazing aspect of the game is that it has there's like all these like little secrets and like whenever I think about the game, one of my most fond memories. Like obviously to me, the the two most amazing parts of the game are when you first got into Hyrule Field and then when you get the Master Sword and you realize there is so much more going on because honestly. Like, the first three dungeons and getting the spiritual stone and going to the Temple of Time and getting the Master Sword in that part of the game, that feels like that could be a whole fucking game the first time you play it. Like, it's got such a clearly defined sort of, like, narrative arc 
and like it just feels like its own self-contained adventure in a way and so then when you realize there's this whole massive part of the game that you haven't even touched yet like you haven't even really experienced the game yet like the real game is being adult link and but when you first become adult link you can end up getting the big goron sword which is sort of like one of the major optional things you can get in the game that like it's basically a big sword that does twice the damage of the master sword but you can't use a shield and like the 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 fetch quest like thing you have to go on to get to the big goron to get the big goron sword is so ridiculous and amazing because it's just like i have to go to this dude and get like a i need to get like a chicken egg from this guy but i can only hold the chicken egg for like two minutes or else like something bad's gonna happen so i have to run over here and like like talk to this woman and she'll tell me how to wake up the chicken i wake up the chicken it's like i get the chicken to this guy and get like a potion so i go over here but it's like oh wait no i need to to go talk to a carpenter so i need to go talk to a carpenter and he needs me to go do something but it's also timed like whatever i need to do is like i have to do it in five minutes I have to run all the way over to that side of the world and get this thing, like, all just to, like, repair this shitty knife you bought as a kid that broke, and, like, to, to get this guy to repair it into a proper sword. It's, like, this, the most ridiculous fetch quest I've ever seen. It's completely optional. But it's, like, you have to just run your ass for, like, 30 minutes all across the game world, and it's, like, you have to be so tight on how you get across this, like, you know, you have to get to Lake Hylia in, like, one minute, or else you're completely fucked. And there's just so many, there's so many, like, just wonderful little moments like that, like exploring Grudo, the Grudo Fortress and stuff in that game, that, like, it's it's just, to me, it's a completely magical game, and it's something that, like, I wish, I wish Nintendo would be more experimental with their Legend of Zelda titles, like, like, because Majora's Mask also, I think, is, it has a very different vibe to it, but since it's so different, it feels amazing in its own way, because Majora's Mask is so dark. Because, like, the entire game takes place in the last three days before the apocalypse. And you just keep on going back to the beginning of those three days to try to prevent the moon from crashing into the earth. It's a super dark fucking game. And every, like, past that, you know, Wind Waker, they even go so far as to, like, try to replicate the the music playing system from Ocarina of Time when it makes no sense for that to be placed in Wind Waker and certainly no sense for it to be in Twilight Princess. It's like... I so wish Nintendo would be able to figure out how to advance the Legend of Zelda games forward because it's like, as far as I'm concerned, they hit it with Ocarina of Time so perfectly and I've just been trying to recreate that magic and it's just not something you can do. Like, just Ocarina of Time is perfect. To me, it's timeless. Like, obviously, since I played it when I was a kid, like, I'm able to look past how dated the graphics look and stuff like that. But, like, if you're able to look past that, I think the game is so well-designed that it, to me, it, it stands the test of time the way few games do, but it, but two other games from 1998 really do. But yeah, yeah. So that I'm is your no- time, dude. that is your number five. Yep. Uh, one of the last games I believe directed by Shigeru Miyamoto, he actually was hands on. He was the lead designer on. He was also the director on our next game that I'm talking about. My number four favorite game of all time. <laughs> Super Mario 64. God, I fucking love this awesome, awesome game. Uh, listeners of the podcast know I'm a big Mario fan. I, you know, I, I love a good platformer, which really just means I like the main series Mario games an yeah. awful lot. 
um, and maybe some of the early Sonic games. Which I, they're kind of platformers, I guess is what you would categorize. Yeah, they're technically as. platformers, but they play so differently from yeah. the, like standard platformer. Yeah. yeah, but you know, I, I gotta say, when I just say the word game, like what is a video game? Mario style platforming is actually one of the first things that often comes to my mind because I think there's just this sort of sheer joyful, immersive escapism these best Mario games have, and that just kind of represents the height of this certain type of gaming where it's not about story or characters or anything; it's just about having fun. And, you know, I don't think about movies or TV shows or games that the primary purpose is to entertain. I don't like that viewpoint that it has to, like, the primary purpose is to have fun, and if it's not fun, why even try? Well, okay, the entertaining and having fun are very different things, because I would say the primary purpose of all the things is to entertain, that's why you make them. Uh, I guess, but I, I think there are... Entertaining and having fun, like, you can entertain people by making them very sad. Well, yes, that's true, and that's, we're getting into semiotics here, yes. but yeah. Um, I agree with that. But yes, I think you know there are many different kinds of experiences we can have, and I really do value the best Mario games as much as I value something like The Last of Us that is you know, super dark. That entertains and, you by making you really fucking sad. And then conflicted yeah. and just disgusted by what you're doing. But with Mario, this is just about a gaming as pure, enjoyable, fun you know, game. And I think, I think the Mario games are just so fully capable of engaging the senses that games can do. You know, this is something that games, unlike other artistic mediums, can really engage you to this level that is different than, than other kinds of, of mediums. And that's what Mario taught me. And that is why Super Mario 64 is here, because I technically think there are better Mario games past that point. I think Super Mario Galaxy 2 and Super Mario 3D Land, you could very easily argue, are the two best Mario games. Mario is different than Zelda and a lot of the other series in that yeah. Nintendo hasn't just made the same game over and over and over again with Mario. Now, Mario has a set kind of gameplay style, yeah. but Super Mario Sunshine as a sequel to 64 is completely different in many ways. Yeah. It's got an actual like narrative that goes on, not it's, that it's, it's super It is depth. like the Majora's Mask yes. of, of Mario games. Yeah, and and then Super Mario Galaxy is, you know, it's got all these other components to it, these anti-gravity elements. It's, it's a totally different style of platforming at that point. Mm -hmm. And then Super Mario 3D Land innovates again by having this 3D component and this very different style of gameplay to the platforming. And I think they've refined it and refined it to such a degree where uh, some of the things they do in Galaxy 2 and 3D Land, I can't even believe what I'm playing sometimes because the platforming is just so challenging but fun and, and rewarding. And the imagination on display is just so crazy and out there. The games really feel for platformers, just very boundary-pushing to me. But, you know, if I'm being honest, and I want to put a Mario game on here, and it's, you know, standing in for the larger Mario series, Super Mario 64 is definitely my choice. You know, this is the first 3D Mario game, and it's one of the first games I probably ever played in depth, because it was an, our Nintendo 64 was our first home console system. I think I had a Game Boy, was technically my first console ever. Mm -hmm. But this is our first home console system. If you had an N64, you owned Super Mario 64, yeah. obviously. And Back in the era where you just you straight up put games with systems. Yes. I miss those days. Yep. Super Mario 64. Yeah. Very easy to okay, tell. Okay, well, I don't, I don't miss the... Because they still do it, but the naming gimmick thing yes. is not... Never love that. No. But yes. So Super Mario 64, and I think... This game I've played more than any other game. Not in terms of hours, but in terms of number of times I've beaten the campaign. Mm. Um, I've played it you know, at least once through on the N64. I've played it much more on the DS remake, which is a really good yeah, remake. They, they polished up the graphics. You can have some extra characters to play with. Yeah, there's like Luigi and Yoshi and stuff. Yeah. Although, I think there's some sort of magic to Super Mario 64 that is central to why it's on this list 
that I think you have to play the original N64 version to get, which is that... You need this... that shitty draw distance. God, like, I tried to play this game, like, three months ago, and it's still really good past... I don't I don't like the game past, like, probably the, the second main boss, but uh, that draw distance does not hold up. It's like you're trying to, like, collect all, like, the flying, like, red coins, or, like, the flying coins or whatever, and it's like... They just draw, like, two feet in front of my face. How am I supposed to angle into them? This is completely ridiculous. How do we put up with this bullshit? Right. And, you know, I, I'll admit, I play the DS version because it's, you know, superior in many ways. And yeah. It's the easier version to play at this point. Just pop it in my DS. But, yeah. Um, but what the thing about the original 64 is that it has this... There's so much character to the game, to the castle grounds. All that wonder levels are just wondrously designed and so creative. But I also kind of like how there's just this sense of... Um, Isolation to it that it's it's your Mario and that's that's all you see. You are Mario. You're on the castle and like grounds. these weird ghostly toads that are only ghostly because of the shitty fucking draw distance. Uh, but the toads are not on the castle grounds with you. You find them sometimes in levels and maybe they'll come out. No, but... no, it's like when you're walking around the castle, like they're they're. Toads oh, you'll find one like or two. Walking. Yeah, yeah. You don't notice them because they only draw when you're like one foot in front of them because. Shitty fucking draw distance. Yes, but anyway, for the most part, you know, the castle grounds are empty, everything's gone, Bowser's taken everything, and, and it's this very fun concept of he's taken them into paintings. So the castle is just kind of. Well, dimensional empty. portals dimensional disguised as paintings, paintings. Yes. That apparently Peach, like, it's like, it's a really elaborate crossover with the portal universe. Yes. So, you know, it's. There's something so cool about that and so immersive in the isolation that it's just you. You're just Mario, and you're out to save the princess and go through these levels. And I think there's something so pure as a gaming experience about that of it's you and Mario kind of one-to-one, that's it, Yeah. go play the game, and there's not any frills on top of that. But those castle grounds, some of my favorite memories are just exploring them, and all that, it, it was almost like, sometimes there was this kind of like danger, creepy feeling to it when you would get to a new area like the dungeons or something and you wouldn't quite know what it is and if you're a little kid it's like this is kind of weird and interesting yeah. and scary in a way and and really fun in that way when you start these, the grounds are really a character in and of themselves and exploring them but then you go into all the levels and you know there are levels that I don't like as much as some of the other ones I think. Yeah I think when they get overly elaborate it becomes because you know the whole like the whole design is you go in and you have like your objective that you, you would pick is like described by like a sentence and yeah. I, f- I find like, like past a certain point the levels become so elaborate that like that sentence is no longer a sufficient describer for like how what am I supposed to fucking do here like this is like this right. ridiculously massive labyrinth how am I supposed to find like oh like you know punch the rabbit it's like what what is that where am I supposed to like when it's just like this small like focused world it's like okay like there's the chomp. It says ch- like chomp in this uh, description. I have to do something with that, right? And you know, and that's something they definitely cleaned up an awful lot in the Galaxy games, for instance, and in Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's an issue where I just think the 64 to me is my favorite Mario game because of what I described so far. But also that you've got to consider, just as you talked with with Zelda, they were really blazing trails yeah. here on, on Super Mario 64. And Shigeru Miyamoto, what a unbelievably Phenomenal career for him up to that yeah. point, and then to make these two games to cap off sort of his directorial career, it's amazing. Yeah. And and Super Mario sixty four, just the, the general format where one level plays host to multiple missions. The goal of each is to get a star, but there is this hub world you go back to, 
and you kind of it's exploration on both level on on the level of the hub world and the actual levels is important uh, on both of those. That's all really fascinating and well done. Um, it's just tr- really great, and I, I have so much fun with it. The platforming is fantastic, and again, Galaxy games are probably better technically speaking with the controls and everything. But 64, it really still even if you go back to the shitty Nintendo 64 controller, it controls yeah. very well, very fluidly. The platforming is a lot of fun exploring these worlds. There's just that some sort of Nintendo character to it that is so just so cheerful and optimistic mm-hmm. and fun and I have I love that sort of how you described Ocarina of Time and I think it's interesting they're right next to each other on our list yeah. that's kind of how I feel about 64 and it's not you know an adventure story like that yeah. or anything it doesn't really have a story obviously but it's just sort of that he general... baked you a cake and then she got kidnapped because yeah. Bowser doesn't like cakes I don't know why Bowser wants the princess really badly yeah I guess yeah, I don't know why he doesn't just go like while Mario's sleeping, like kill Mario, then take the princess. He can do whatever he wants at that point. But what would be the point? Because Mario would just come back to life. Like Mario's died so many times. <laughs> yeah, you but can't kill Mario. Yeah. So yeah, and the platforming's you know really good as I was just saying, and that general character to it. But more than anything, there is just kind of that special aura surrounding it to me, and it's more than nostalgia because I can go back to it now and it holds up one hundred percent for Except me. Except for the draw distance. Uh, but in the DS version, that's not a problem. Well, that, that doesn't count as going back. It's okay. different. It's a remake of the game. That's like me saying I go back and the graphics hold up really great in Halo Anniversary Edition. Okay, but at the 64... I should say then, 64DS is the version I am most familiar okay. with, that I've played should, the most. That, that should, then Super Mario 64DS is the one on the list, then. Okay, fine. Whatever. Super Mario 64... I, there's just this aura to it that I love. It's I really can't put my love for it into concrete words. It's just kind of magical, like you said, for Ocarina of yeah. Time. And that's why it places this high on the list. Um, at my number four spot, I just... I really, really love it. And yeah. I, I, I've, been, I've been, like... I mean, I think I have, like, legitimate... Like, a lot of legitimate criticisms of Super Mario 64, but I really love the game, too. Like yeah. It's definitely... It is definitely a fantastic game. So. I mean, that music, it's great. Yeah. And we just play yeah. it. Love it. So, that's my number four. We're about to finish out the episode with Sean's number four. Yes, my number four game of all time. <laughs> So, do you think the listeners know that we like Persona? I don't know. Maybe like it's it's. I feel like it's maybe come up every now and then. I they have know. to read between the lines. Yeah, yeah. No, Persona Four. If you want to hear our full <laughs> thoughts on Persona Four, we did we did an excessive amount of podcasting around just Shin Megami Tensei Persona Four. So we did. Not only did Sean talk about it on his end of year 2012 yeah, list, my, my number zero game of the year. Yeah, and he had a really big discussion of it there that's really... I would listen to that. Then you can also listen to, if you have played the game, because it's super spoilery, we did two podcasts, a two-parter that we released in one day, I think it's like 34 and 35 of WGTC Radio, six hours in total talking about Persona 4, so... Yeah, we've said our piece on this. Yeah. But we can say more. Yeah, so this is this is the third time for me specifically bringing this up as a specific topic on the podcast. So, I don't know how to how to say how much I love Persona 4 again in different words, but it's just 
And I should say specifically, like, I, I am using the version of, like, Shin Gami Tensei Persona 4, the original version on the PS2 that came out in 2008, developed by Atlas. Like, I played Persona 4 The Golden, and if you have not played Persona 4, that is the version you should play. But since I personally start, like, the first version I played was the original version, that's the one I have most affection for. Like, in my mind, I still think of Chie as having this weirdly kind of sounds like an old woman voice, you know? I, I still love old Chie more, but... Yeah, Persona 4 is... If you absolutely know nothing about it, it's a... it's a. How do you fucking start this conversation? It's it a, is a delightful mystery yeah. set in the small Japanese town of Inaba, where you okay, and your friends must... Okay, okay. It's, it's a JRPG, and it is, it is the JRPG that rekindled my faith in that genre. Which is kind of unfair, because it's, it wouldn't have to say that it really just rekindled my faith in Persona games, which, okay, kindled, kindled my, my faith. faith. Yeah, because, because no other JRPGs are like it. And why why I love Persona 4 and I don't love most JRPGs? Twofold reasons. One, the stories in most JRPGs fucking are terrible. They are so bloated and unnecessary and like the most stereotypical anime style stories. This is just basically, I guess, maybe Japanese style stories at some point. But it's like, it's so that in the worst way of like the, the terrible versions of those that are super self-indulgent overly philosophical to the point that they say absolutely nothing but think they say a whole lot and I hate that and it's so hard that's like any Final Fantasy past 7 and even a little bit of 7 because 7 started it like it's that it's just I hate I can't stand it but Persona 4 I had heard so much good about it from like GiantBomb.com and places like that where I was like okay this game seems really interesting when I looked up looked it up so it's like I need to check this thing out that played it, and what Persona 4 does is it tells a really great story, and more specifically, it it has some of the most fully like rounded, most believable, engaging, interesting three dimensional characters, both in terms of the graphics and in the video game, and, and and in terms of like their 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 character development that I've ever encountered in anything. The characters are so wholly realized, and particularly the way you spend so much time with the characters, and you go on so many like funny little I guess tiny adventures with them. It's so charming and endearing and, and so immersive in a way of, like, you, you feel like these characters become your friends as they become your characters' friends over the course of the game. And that so it holds up this storytelling side of it that most JRPGs no longer do, and most RPGs don't in general, I should say. But then, on the other side of that, the one of the major problems with most JRPGs is that the games are obsessively and unbelievably repetitive and have terrible, terrible, boring-ass motherfucking combat. Which the games like Pokemon and Final Fantasy games I always find is like, the only thing you do in the game, the only thing you do is get into battles, then select like, it's just basically a select attack or fire spell for your mage character and just do that over and over and over again if it's a turn-based game. And that's so boring to me as that being your your gameplay mechanic and that's effectively it because it's like you know that's not a great that's not really engaging combat you know something like a Halo or a Call of Duty can scrape by on combat being the only gameplay mechanic at all in the game because the combat's really engaging and so much fun and that's what they put all their effort into whereas with JRPGs or just RPGs in general most of the effort should go towards like the story and character stuff and like sort of fully realizing that and then the combat system is sort of like a necessary thing you need to engage and involve you with the game and give you some conflict and ways to resolve that conflict. And so since that's not the primary focus, that com the, the combat's never going to be the best part of the game. And so if, but if it's the only part of the game, it gets so dull. So Persona 4 and the Persona games solve that problem 
by having two main mechanics. One is, I mean, it has a lot of mechanics, but the primary mechanics are the combat and, like, dungeon exploration, which are sort of, which is like a turn-based combat that I really love the combat for a lot of different reasons. I'm not going to go on about the combat here, but I think it's a very engaging exciting version of turn-based combat as opposed to like the really dull turn-based combat. It really gets you thinking, it makes you creative. Yeah, it's... but it's also very fast-paced. Yes. Like if you like when you know like you like you feel like you learn so much by by playing the combat system and there's so much to master through the combat system and once you do master it you can like fights that feel like I should be able to wipe the floor with these enemies, you just wipe the floor with them and kill them in like two seconds and it's like you move on. And so that that aspect of the combat's really fun. While listening to awesome battle music. Yeah, no kidding. But then on the the other primary game mechanic and the one that's the most interesting is that sort of the, the game is split between you going into the combat world and then being in this like the real world and with the value of the real world you play as this high school student and one of the major mechanics is that you sort of have to build relationships with the characters and as you build relationships with characters it, it enhances your ability to engage in the combat by making your personas better and so since you just, and so that sort of unified like everything sort of feeds into making your personas better to make the combat easier it, it sort of like combines the combat and this the social linking the social element of the game Amazingly, and so since you're jumping between this, like, okay, now I'm just going to spend my like this week just out, like, just like living my life as this high school student. I'm going to hang out with Yosuke. I'm going to get some steaks with Chie. I'm going to study at night while I'm not studying in my actual life in the real world. And it's like, and then I'm going to, you know, then I'm going to go. It's a rainy day, but I don't want to go into the TV world and go into all the fighting the dungeon bullshit. So I'm just going to go get like a rainy day mega beef bowl or whatever and get my social stats up. Like, the fact that they have those two different gameplay systems, but that are, like, but they're mixed in just, like, they're both sort of, like, trying to accomplish the same thing, it's so perfectly balanced, and it fixes the pacing problem that all RPGs have, but particularly JRPGs have had. And so that alone makes Persona 4 just an absolutely outstanding game of, like, you look at, you take a look at this genre that has become unbelievably stale, and it's like, how do we make this not stale anymore? How do we breathe life into it? And it's like, by taking this like completely different, like sort of like dating sim style gameplay stuff and slapping it together with like a really engaging turn-based combat that Atlas developed over the course of making a bunch of Shin Megami Tensei games, which is sort of like the father series of Persona. And it's, it's just, like in terms of just raw game design, like even ignoring the story stuff, it is so smart and so engaging and just it's a very gamey game like it's sort of in a lot of ways it's a counterpoint to something like The Last of Us or like in how it handles ludonarrative dissonance where it's like The Last of Us doesn't feel like a video game the way you think about a video game it feels a lot more real and visceral than that and that sort of like gets rid of the ludonarrative dissonance whereas with Persona 4 it's like it is a super video gamey video game you know like you're, you're like bumping up stats and like getting like discrete levels on the social link and having discrete levels and like you have turn-based combat system that you load into like discrete like battle like scenes and stuff like that like it's super gamey but you never think about it like it's just like it's so natural it's like whatever it's a video game and it's fun and engaging on that level but it's like it never feels like it, you know like you can make the jokes about like ha huh, like turn-based combat why does everyone like why doesn't everyone attack at once or why is everyone just like standing around for five minutes but it's like it, you don't want to make those jokes it's just it feels so natural it's like whatever it's turn-based combat like this is what happens in this world in some weird way you know and I think it's all because it all works in service of such a great story and character arcs 
and those are directly our understanding of the character development and the arc of the character development and the yeah. thematic development is all related so closely to the gameplay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, every just everything feeds into everything else. It's like it, you don't feel like like while there are like discrete systems and mechanics, it all feels like one sort of seamless blended experience and you're always looking forward to what you're going to do next you know if you're like out in the social linking world you're always kind of looking forward to I want to get I want to go make some badass personas which are basically like kind of like way better versions of Pokemon in terms of game mechanics and it's like I want to make this really awesome persona so that way I can go back into the, the dungeon and just wipe the floor with some motherfuckers and such an extreme yeah. sense of satisfaction when you get a persona and you're like oh god I yeah. cannot wait to use you. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, it's so. The gameplay systems are so rewarding, and th- there's just so much depth to the game that, like, they, that is there for you to master. That is like because you know I played through Persona Four twice. Or I guess I kind of played it through like two point two five times because I played the original game to completion, started a new game plus, and then like kind of like that petered off. Played a different game that we'll talk about, and then eventually it came around like he's got a Vita because you got a Vita, and I played Persona Four the Golden. And I was like, play that game to completion, and I fucking mastered that, like, 100% at all the social links, completed the Persona Compendium, into that game, it's level 99, with fucking Lucifer at my beck and call, you know? You had all those trophies, too, so you've got, yeah, like, proof yeah. of all this shit. Yeah, so, yeah, like, I've, I've mastered the Persona games, or at least the modern Persona games, because there's, like... And, but that was not a simple task, because when I, you know... Say I beat Persona 4 2.25 times... That means I would have, I probably have spent near 200 hours just playing Persona 4, and that's the only one of the Persona games I have played. And so, yeah, there's, it, like, it, it is one of the very few games, particularly one of the very few RPGs, and RPG is my favorite genre, you will find that out very quickly, that, like, like every aspect of it holds up, that every aspect of it is incredibly entertaining, but they build off of each other in great ways. So it's just like the combat is so much fun. Like the combat is so rich and engaging on its own. And so is like the social link dating sim kind of side of the game. Like those are both, you know, like a, it could just be a traditional JRPG and it still would be a lot of fun. Or it could be like this dating sim game and it would still be a lot of fun. But it's like mixing the two together to solve the pacing problems of each is so fucking brilliant. And so I guess like, that's sort of like where I want to take that or like leave that discussion with Persona 4 it's like it is it is a brilliantly designed game and like I don't want to go into the story stuff a lot but it's like I think the story is phenomenal it's and we did a, a whole yeah. the, most yeah. of those six hours are us talking about the story yeah. characters yeah. so like the story has some hiccups there like the ending I'm not I'm not absolutely in love with I don't think it's terrible but it's like but the characters are what make it so magical you know like fucking Chie dude I love Chie. Chie. Chie and Teddy. Goddamn Kanji. Kanji's so great. And so is Risei and Yukiko. Like, and Naoto and Teddy. And fucking Nanako. Like, all those characters. Hey, big bro. Yeah. Okay, and here, like, the last thing I'll say about Persona 4, because it, it, is, it is also one of the most significant things about the game, is that, you know, I spent... I think my... Like, the first time I played Persona 4, I ended my game time was around 90 hours. And like for most like for most games, I was, you would think that would be so excessive. Persona Four necessitates that lengthy playtime so much in terms of just fully because it has these two completely developed gameplay systems that it mixes together. It needs to have the time for both of those to be able to be go into their own. And one of them, the JRPG side, 
you know, that's so progressive, progression-based, where it's like, you know, you're leveling up and stuff like that, that you need a really lengthy amount of time for it to feel significant, that, like, you're so much more powerful by the end of the game to make that, like, progression-based system feel, like, good. But so they take advantage of that in the fact that the game takes place over the course of a year, like, effectively in real time for them, and that, like, you have, you can only take, like, a certain number of actions each day or whatever, so it's not like, you know, you don't... Like, it's not a year, and it's like, you know, the game's like a million hours long, but you feel that length of time for the characters. Like, it's... The characters change so much over that year, you change so much over that year, the character you changes so much over that year, that it's just like... it. it, Again, like, the way it uses gameplay mechanics and, like, the way it fixes its own problems with, like, amazingly creative solutions. It's like, if this needs to be a long fucking game, it's going to take place over a long period of time, where it's like most RPGs are like, this takes place, you know, like in a Mass Effect game, Mass Effect 2 takes place over the course of a week or, like, five years. Like, I don't fucking know. Like, fucking Shepard never goddamn sleeps. You go to bed... (laughs) 365 okay not actually because it skips a few like like tests or whatever but almost 365 times you go to bed you fucking go up to your room it's like you feel pretty tired maybe you should go to sleep it's like yeah okay you go to sleep get up in the morning you go to school maybe it's Sunday you go hang out with your friends you leave Nanako alone so she can watch TV and be depressed on her own because and then you go fight some monsters yeah exactly then you go fight some monsters like it it's the game takes place over a goddamn year and it takes like you know ninety hours for you to experience that year, but by the time it's done, you're like, well, gee, that's like you know, I guess I just now I know what it is like to live as a, a second year student in a Japanese high school that also has magical persona powers and goes into a TV world and fights monsters called shadows and has to understand and face his true self and solve a murder mystery. I have lived that experience. I have, I have like lived that fucking experience. And that's what video games are for, is for you to be able to live experiences that are amazing and fantastical and that you can't actually experience in a way that other media can't do. And Persona 4 is certainly an example of that at the very top of its form. So, that's right. it. That's my number four, is Persona 4. Seems fitting. Seems we, will be fitting back. we will be back at you next week with the conclusion, the epic, long-awaited conclusion to our list of the top ten. What will be our number one games? Superman 64? Halo Wars? Who knows? Tune in next time on... WGTC Radio, Top 10 Favorite Video Games of All Time.